We're continuing in our study in Ephesians this morning. Paul Goebel kicked us off last week. If you didn't get to hear that, I'd encourage you to go listen to it on the website. Very encouraging word. He also encouraged you to read Ephesians in one sitting. I don't know if any of you did your homework, but uh, I hope you did. We won't be taking a grade on that or anything. But as we get started, let me pray for us that the Lord would bless our time together. Father, we thank you for this new morning. We pray that you would be with us as we open your word. We pray that your spirit would open the eyes of our hearts to see Christ in a new way. Lord, that you would draw us to yourself. If we don't know you, that you would show us your glory and your beauty in Christ. And if we do know you, that you would give us a hunger to know you even more. Thank you for your word. Thank you for Ephesians and the Apostle Paul. We pray now that you would help us. Teach us your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I want to say a few words, just introductory, about Ephesians because uh, we're just getting started and there's a lot to say about any book of the Bible. And I, I say this, I know this is risky, but I want to start by using a bad word, and that word is grammar. And I, I don't want this to feel like first period English class, I don't want you to start shaking, but bear with me for a second. I, 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 I'm just going to say it, it sometimes feels like Paul, the Apostle Paul might have needed a writing class. I say that with utmost respect because he was God's chosen instrument, but he just gets so excited about what God's doing that he forgets to put a comma or a period. I don't know if, if you've seen this before. In English, we really try to cover for him so some commas and some periods, but in Greek, I don't know if you realize, in chapter 1, verses 3 through 23 is just a few sentences, and verses 3 through 14 is all one sentence, so Paul just piles up all these things because he's so excited about what God's doing. And so I just want to say, if you sometimes have reading Paul, you're in good company. My mom actually said this last year when she was studying Romans. She's like, I just don't quite understand Paul. I said, Mom, I know it's okay. Um, but the, another person who's with you is the Apostle Peter. I don't know if you've seen this verse, 2 Peter 3.16. Peter says, there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And that's, that's just encouraging to me. That's the other 3.16 verse. So if you ever struggle with Paul or if you did your homework and you were reading Ephesians and you just found yourself lost in a string of prepositional phrases piled on top of each other, just kind of pull up a chair. You're welcome here. And I think there is a bit of good news here that God is more gracious than our high school English teacher and he uses instruments uh, that are just jars of clay like Paul, like you and me. And so this is a beautiful letter. And there's another aspect of Paul's grammar that is actually really beautiful and less confusing, and that's what we, we might call the grammar of the gospel. I don't know if you've heard that phrase before, the grammar of the gospel. Every language has a grammar, and the gospel of Jesus Christ is no different. Think about these two simple statements. Loves you, first statement. Love one another. They're two simple statements, but they're actually very different. The first statement, God loves you, that's an indicative statement. It's just telling you what God has done. But the second statement, love one another, is an imperative statement. It's a command. It tells you what to do. So Paul is a master of the grammar of the gospel. We see it in Romans, where really like 11 chapters are indicative. And then in chapter 12, he starts telling you what to do. And Ephesians, we see it too. In chapters 1 through 3, there's just one imperative. In chapter 2, verse 11, he says, remember who you were. That's the one thing he tells you to do in three whole chapters. That means for three whole chapters, Paul is simply telling us what God has done for us. And then chapters four through six 
are full of imperatives, how to live mixed in with more of what God has done for us. So what's the point? The point is the way Paul is writing, the logic of his writing reflects the logic of the gospel. So other religions lead with do, do this, do this, do this, and hope that God might love you or receive you. Christianity leads with done. Christ has done it. It is finished. And that's what we're going to start with. And so Paul just backs up the truck and he unloads three whole chapters of what God has done for us in Christ before he really tells us what to do. So in a room full of guys that just want to know what to do, this is a challenge for us. But it's a good thing for us. It's what we need. Three chapters of God's grace to us and then three chapters of God's grace through us. I think that's the way Paul Goebel described it last week. Or we could say three chapters of what it really means to be in Christ, and then three chapters of what it means to live in Christ, in Ephesus, or in Dallas, or in wherever you are, how that works itself out. So as we go, I want you to remember the grammar of the gospel, and maybe you can laugh. It's probably the only grammar lesson you'll ever enjoy. So I want you to see Paul's heart this morning. His heart for the church, what we have before us is one of his prayers, basically, him describing what he's praying for the Ephesians. And you may have seen these passages before as kind of throwaway passages. If that is the case for you, I just encourage you to lean in this morning because we're eavesdropping on Paul's prayer life, which is a real privilege. We have this open window into his heart. And what we see in his heart is beautiful because he loves the Lord. He loves the church. And what does he long for? He longs. Lord, for the Lord to make himself known to the church, for us to know the Lord and to grow deeper and deeper in our knowledge of the Lord. So follow along with me as we read Ephesians 1, 15 to 23. After all that he said in the first 14 verses, Paul says, For this reason, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Thanks be to God. So I just want to focus on two things this morning, break the passage down this way, what Paul knows about the church and what Paul prays for the church. So think about what Paul knows about the church. If you look in verse 15, he, he knows that they know the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 15, he says he's heard of their faith in the Lord Jesus, and he's heard of their love toward all the saints. This is what knowing God looks like. It has this vertical dimension, loving the Lord, looking away from ourselves, looking to Jesus, trusting in what he's done for us, his life, his, his resurrection, faith in the Lord Jesus. But it's never just that. It has a horizontal dimension too, loving our neighbors. In this case, he says love toward all the saints, but also loving the lost. And so Paul's heart for the church for church people, but also for lost people, is that we would know the Lord. 
It's a chord that really rings out all over the Bible. I just want to play a few notes of it for you. So think about Jeremiah 9, 23 through 24. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me. Hosea 6, 3. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. On the other side of things, Matthew 7, 22 and 23, this is sort of the darker side of not knowing the Lord. Jesus says, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Cast out demons in your name? Do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. When Jesus prays in John 17, 3, what's at the heart of it? He he prays to the Father. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. And when Paul tells his story in Philippians 3, he talks about everything he had before he knew Christ. And he says, in verses 7 and 8, he says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So those are just a few examples, but can you feel the weight of it? It makes sense that some people, Christianity is really about knowing Christ and making him known. This knowledge is at the center of it. So what is this knowledge? What does it mean to know him? So think about a significant relationship in your life. Marriage could be a great example, but... If you're not married, think about a close friend. For me, I think, what does it mean for me to know my wife? There's an intellectual aspect to being married to Anne. My mind is engaged. I need to know things about her. I need to care about the details of her life. So my mind is engaged. But if I only know about her, if it's nothing more than that, then something's missing. So there's also this emotional aspect. My heart is engaged. I need to have affection for her. But then if I only have affections for her, if it's nothing else, something's missing. There's also a volitional aspect to knowing. My will is engaged. I need to do things for her. I need to experience life with her. I need to be active in this relationship with her. But if I only do things for her, if it's nothing else, then something's missing. So knowing and loving someone engages all of who we are. Mind, affections, will. And since we're embodied souls, our body is part of it too. So knowing and loving someone requires that we're thoughtful, that we're affectionate, that we're active, and think about it. Knowing God is really no different. So if we just know some things about God, just kind of have a little knowledge in our mind, that's all it is. We don't really know him as we should. Or if we just have some affections for God from time to time, emotions rise for the Lord, we don't know him as we should. Or if we just try to do some things for God, occasionally, we don't know him as we should. So we'll, we'll never do it perfectly this side of heaven, but knowing and loving God means all three ways of knowing are engaged, are firing. Our former pastor, Skip Ryan, once said, being a Christian means I give all I know to all I know of Jesus. So think about that this morning. Are we giving all that we know of ourselves? However much we know about ourselves, are we giving that to all that we know of Jesus? Whatever we know of him, surrendering ourselves to him. And Paul sees evidence that this glorious, messy reality is happening at Ephesus. So more and more, Jesus Christ is at the center of the Ephesians' lives. As we study Ephesians, we need to ask, so what's 
What's at the center of our lives? Because that's really what Paul's concerned with. There's a little book by C.J. Mahaney called Living the Cross-Centered Life, and he leads with this great, it's the very first thing he does. He's talking about what's at the center of our lives. I'll share it with you. He says, each of our lives is centered on something. What's at the center of yours? Think about it for a moment. What's really the main thing in your life? Only one thing can truly be first in priority, so what's at the top of your list? Second to none. Or let me put it this way. What are you most passionate about? What do you love to talk about? What do you think about most when your mind is free? Or try this. What is it that defines you? Is it your career, a relationship? Maybe it's your family or your ministry. It could be some cause or movement or some political affiliation. Or perhaps your main thing is a hobby or a talent you have or even your house and possessions. Maybe your life's passion is not so much a single focus as a constantly shifting gaze. So brothers, what's at the center? What do you want to define you? Think about the sun being at the center of our solar system. It's not just a fact. It's a fact that has force. The sun holds the rest of the solar system together. So whatever's at the center of our lives is not just a fact. It's a fact with force. What's at the center of your life? Is it something big enough to hold it all together? Because only Jesus Christ can do that. If your life were defined by faith in the Lord Jesus and love for all the saints, would that be enough for you? It's enough for Paul and his heart for the church. He knows the Ephesians know Christ. Look at verse 16. He says what what he knows leads him to give thanks and to pray for them. So let's consider, secondly, what Paul prays for the church. He's already emphasized the Ephesians know Christ. Now he prays that God would help them to grow deeper and deeper in that knowledge. So verses 17 and 18, he prays that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. So notice several things that you might just pass over. The triune God is fully invested in helping us get to know him better. We have the Father of glory, the Lord Jesus Christ, the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. Isn't that encouraging that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all engaged in helping you grow in the knowledge of Christ? And the implication really is clear that we can't grow in our knowledge of God without his help. We need the spirit of wisdom and of revelation. We need to have the eyes of our hearts enlightened. And Paul doesn't say it, probably because he assumes it so much, but we need to not assume it in the room this morning. We can't just pray, Lord, open my eyes to see you. I want to know you. And never open the book where he reveals himself to us. If we're going to pray, Lord, open the eyes of my heart to see you. I want to know you better. That goes hand in hand with this, where he makes himself known to us. So think about this morning, if you want to know Christ, are you hungry for his word? And if not, do you want to be hungry for his word? Would you pray, Lord, give me a hunger for your word? Have we taken this to heart? Like when we open our Bibles, do we ask the one who inspired it to illumine it in our hearts? When we listen to a sermon, do we ask the Lord to open the eyes of our hearts? When we feel dead in our relationship with the living God, do we beg him? to give us life. On the surface, Paul's logic seems a little strange. It's like he's saying, Lord, they know you, but I pray that they'll get to know you better. If you think about it, 
really, that's the most logical thing in the world to pray. When I get a new guitar, I'm not like these guys who buy it and put it in a case under their bed and never play it. And they say, it's an investment. It's a family heirloom. My grandson will be so happy 40 years from now to get it. That just doesn't make sense to me at all. Because I want to know that guitar, knowing it at all, like having it at all, holding it in my hands is an invitation to know it completely, to figure out what it does best, what kind of tone it produces, what songs are hidden inside of it. And I think that's what knowing looks like for anything that we love. We're not just content to, to know it a little bit. We want to dive deeper and know it more and more. So brothers, are you, are you satisfied with your current knowledge of the Lord? I know there's a content, I mean, content in Christ, but are you just okay with where you are with the Lord right now? Or do you want to go deeper and deeper because he's inexhaustible? Pray that the Lord would open your eyes and stir your heart to know more. And Paul prays that the Lord would take the church deeper in understanding three aspects of their life in Christ. He focuses on hope, on riches, and power. So I just want to say a few things about each of those. So in verse 18, you see Paul prays that you would know the hope to which he has called you. I think this is pretty universal. We all live by hope. We all have some future hope that's shaping our present reality it might be just getting out of here this morning. Maybe someone dragged you here, and might, I just hope to get out of here alive. It might be getting a deal done this week, or it might be getting married or getting to retirement, but we all have a hope. On the other side, losing hope is really closely connected with losing the will to live. When people lose hope, sometimes it's not very long until they die. It's all connected because we live by hope. So the question is, at the end of the day, is our ultimate hope in the Lord or in something else? I know it's kind of cliche to talk about Braveheart at a men's Bible study, but I'm going to go there. If you remember, Robert the Bruce is the Scottish noble who sympathizes with Mel Gibson's character, William Wallace, the hero. He loves, Robert loves William's passion and his ideals, but Robert's also caught between his father's hopes and Wallace's hopes, which are in conflict. So Robert ends up betraying William Wallace selling him out, basically, in a plot that's hatched by Robert's father. And after that, they have this confrontation where his father says, we must have alliance with England to prevail here. You achieved that. You saved your family, increased your land. In time, you will have all the power in Scotland. And Robert says, lands, titles, men, power, nothing. His father says, nothing? And then Robert says, I have nothing. Men fight for me because if they do not, I throw them off my land. I starve their wives and children. Those men who bled the ground red at Falkirk fought for William Wallace. He fights for something that I never had. And I took it from him when I betrayed him. I saw it in his face on the battlefield, and it's tearing me apart. And then his father says, all men betray. All men lose heart. And Robert, screaming, says, I don't want to lose heart. I want to believe as he does. And he says, I'll never be on the wrong side again. Go watch it on YouTube. <laughs> Just want to ask, are we on the wrong side? Putting our ultimate hope in something other than Christ is to be on the wrong side. 
lands, titles, men, power, nothing. It ends up being nothing. What would you put in those blanks? Success, comfort, pleasure, power, nothing. It's a tragic moment when we get what we hoped for, and it's not what we hoped for. I want to believe that life is about more than making money and acquiring stuff and then passing it on to someone else. We need a bigger, more beautiful horizon. And in Christ, that's just what we have. My son John's two years old. He has no sense of time. It's really fun. His horizon is right now. Like his favorite phrase right now is right now. The other day he said, I want passy right now. And uh, he'll say, playground right now. That's his sense of horizon. I need it right now. Now, my son Will is five now, but when he was four, he had a little bit better sense of time than a two-year-old. He started to know how to hope a little bit. And his favorite question at that time was, after this nap? And nap was usually sleeping at night. That was his big nap. So he would say, is my birthday after this nap? Is Christmas after this nap? You know, are we going to get queso after this nap? Whatever he was excited about. (laughs) After this nap, we're really not that much different. We want things right now or after this nap. But in Christ, we have a much different sense of time. Soon we will be with the Lord, whatever that means. Our horizon is glory. Standing before the throne of God, face to face with Jesus Christ. That's a future hope that shapes our present reality in a thousand different ways. It's other hopes that shrink our horizon down, give us tunnel vision, and make it hard to live faithfully in the present moment. So the hope to which he has called us is the hope, the only hope that won't disappoint us. Our hope in Christ is not wishful thinking. That's not what the Bible means by hope. It's not a Hail Mary It's the sure confidence, as Paul says in Philippians 1, that he who began a good work in us will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. Think about this. If you or I shoot a half court, we hope it'll go in, right? But if we're lucky, we might make one in a day. That's not what the Bible means when it talks about hope, the hope to which he's called us. A few weeks ago, I was listening to the radio, and I heard this stat that Steph Curry is shooting 54% on shots from 30 to 35 feet this year. When he shoots, for everyone else, it's a bad shot. For him, it's a good shot. It's not wishful thinking. He's hoping it's going in. And that's what our hope in Christ is like, except it's not 54%, it's 100%. What God's going to do for us, what he's promised, will be. So do you know the hope to which he has called you? Is it shaping your present reality In verse 18, Paul also prays that you would know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And here's where it's a little bit unclear. Is Paul talking about our inheritance in God or God's inheritance in us? Because it's a little ambiguous and commentators go back and forth. And the great thing is it's sort of like each position implies the other. So let's talk about both. The Bible teaches this astounding truth that we have a glorious inheritance in Christ if we know him We're not just saved from his wrath. We are heirs of God, co-heirs with Christ. Last week in Ephesians 1, we read, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons, and he lavished the riches of his grace upon us. The riches we have in Christ are so different from the riches we have in this world. Our riches in this world, however great or however small, 
are always measurable. But in Ephesians 2, 5 through 7, we read, God saved us and raised us up with Christ so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Our inheritance in the world can perish, can spoil. It's fragile, it's vulnerable. But in 1 Peter 1.4, we learn that in Christ we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. So in the world, our riches are measurable, they're, they're vulnerable, but in Christ we have riches that are immeasurable, unfading, absolutely secure. And as amazing as that is, there's something I think that's even more astounding. Somehow the Lord sees us as his glorious inheritance. That's the other side, because he came for us. Because he came for us, we are what's come into him. It's like we are his portion. Again and again in the Old Testament, God calls his people, his sinful wandering people, his treasured possession. And then in 1 Peter 2.9, we read, we are a people for his own possession. It's like we're engaged to the Lord with the full confidence that the most amazing wedding feast is coming. So if we know Christ, Paul wants us to know how much that changes the way we relate to riches. We're out there killing ourselves to earn and save and spend. And Paul just, I think, wants us to realize, hey, that's chump change, whatever it is, compared to the inheritance that we have in Christ and that he has in us. So is knowing God reframing the word rich for us. If God has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, shouldn't we be the most radically generous people in the world? How could we not be? It's like he's already given us everything. That's what that verse says. Blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. And then other places, it sounds like there's even more coming. So what would it look like to live our lives and give our lives as those who truly know we have a glorious inheritance in Christ. So finally, Paul prays that you would know the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. All this talk about power, it makes me think about the weight room. And I'll say this very carefully because I know I don't really want to get beat up. But I go to the gym, and like I'm happy to be there. I'm just kind of trying to stay healthy. Like I'm just trying to stay level. I don't really need to get bigger or anything. But I see these guys, and they're, you know, they're jacked. And they, they have muscles in places where I don't really even have places. And <laughs> I'm really fine with that. I'm great, secure in Christ. But I'm thinking like, <laughs> I look at these guys and I'm like, good for you, man. I mean, look at all those muscles. And, but I'm asking, like, what is all that power for? Like, what are all those muscles for? Like, are those the muscles you need to like do an Excel spreadsheet at work or <laughs> change a light bulb? Hold your baby. Like the baby doesn't fit like anymore. Too many muscles. <laughs> it kind of feels like all that power. Sort of what I'm thinking. This is what's amazing about the power of Jesus Christ. It's the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe. It's not really Jesus' power for Jesus to show off. It's Jesus' power for us. So think about all the things he says. Raised from the dead for us who believe. Seated at the Father's right hand for us who believe. Far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. 
for us who believe. A name above every name that is named now and forever for us who believe. All things under his feet for us who believe. Head over all things to the church for us who believe. The one who fills all in all, also filling us who believe. So think about this. Jesus has leveraged all his power, not for himself, but for you and for me. The one who lived, died, rose again, reigns, has all the power, all the authority in heaven and on earth. And that's why he says, all authority in heaven and on earth is given to me. Now go. You have that power too in me. Go in it. So, leverage that power that we might be rescued from our sin, have the joy of knowing him. That's where it starts. But beyond that, that power that we might grow deeper and deeper in the knowledge of him, to know the hope to which he has called us, to know the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, to know the immeasurable greatness of his power for us who believe. So do you know Jesus Christ? Do you want to know him more? If you do, you can rest in him this morning because he has done everything necessary. So trust that his power is at work in you and pray that he would open your eyes as you open his word. He wants nothing more than for us to know him more. So let's pray. Father, thank you for Paul's prayer. Thank you for his life. Thank you that we can come around your word this morning and We pray that you would open our eyes, that you would um, open the eyes of our hearts to see you for who you are, that we might be uh, transformed and conformed more and more to your image. Lord, thank you for the hope to which you've called us. Thanks for the riches of your glorious inheritance. Thank you for your immeasurably great power for us who believe. Lord, help us to unpack these things that we might live life in Christ in Dallas. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.